1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. My name is Brandon J. Fedor, and I'm your host. This week, I spoke with Dr. Stacey Alimo about her book, Bodily Natures, Science, Environment, and the Material Self. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you will as well. Today, I'm talking with Stacey Alimo about her book, Bodily Natures, Science, Environment, and the Material Self. Dr. Alimo, thanks for joining us today.
0: You're welcome. I'm happy to be here.
1: Um, Dr. Limoff, as a way to get started, if you could just give us a, a sort of a, a brief uh, bio about your academic career.
0: Okay, sure. Um, I did my master's degree in Madison, Wisconsin, and my Ph.D. at the University of Illinois in the early 1990s. And I worked with Carrie Nelson, Robert Dale Parker, Michael Berube, and Amanda Anderson. Um, It was a really exciting time to be at the University of Illinois, not only because the the Unit for Criticism and Interpretive Theory offered these fabulous symposiums every month, uh, but because the International Cultural Studies Conference was held there. And we also had a really lively feminist theory reading group, which uh, we talked about such things as uh, feminism and pornography, And this reading group, even though it was primarily an intellectual group, even spawned a sluts-against-rape contingent that participated in Take Back the Night. So it was a place where the intellectual work, the theoretical work, and the political work were all pretty um, enmeshed together. So it was a very exciting time to be there. And especially there was a sense of cultural studies being developed or emerging in the United States.
1: Hmm. And you're currently at UT Austin?
0: Uh Arlington, University of Texas at Arlington. Arlington, Okay, great. Mm-hmm. So I live in I live in Dallas right now.
1: Oh, okay, great. Um okay, well Dr. Limo, uh I found your book really interesting. I think that uh the the idea of science environment the material self feminism this the way you sort of approached the topic was really new to me um and you talked about the edited uh the edited uh work material feminisms in your introduction mm-hmm. and i was wondering if you could maybe discuss that a little bit as sort of a way to kind of frame uh your work if that makes any sense
0: okay mm-hmm. sure yes yeah. If I can go back one book before that, though, it's probably an an even better frame. So my first book was called Undomesticated Ground, Recasting Nature as Feminist Space. And in that book, I took up the theoretical and political problem of how women have been associated with nature, which has primarily denigrated both women and nature in various ways. And so because of that association, it resulted in an anti-essentialist, from the whole concept of nature in post-structuralist and postmodern feminism. So what I argue there is that if if you reject any kind of um, association or transformation of nature, this only reaffirms this kind of opposition between nature and culture. And it makes it difficult to form any productive alliances, especially for environmental feminism. So I looked for, for modes of uh, gender-minimizing or post-structuralist concepts of nature, ironically, in literary activists and theoretical texts. And what I found was all this really interesting work that showed nature to be um, this place that was actually more free in terms of gender roles. So the undomesticated means it was um, outside of the domestic realm, but also that it was it wasn't tamed, um, that, that there's a lot more potential there with these kind of Darwinian senses of nature as transformation instead of nature as the static place. But this, this is where the transformation into the next couple projects comes. Um, at some point, I found it really ironic, if not troubling, that my own methodologies, the methodologies I was using or the theory I was using, which are primarily modes of cultural studies, discursive critique, did not allow for the agency or significance of nature or environment or materiality, whatever you want to call it. Um, I could only trace the cultural constructions and the discursive contestations and rearticulations of specific conceptions of nature, which is crucial but limiting in the sense that it didn't allow for nature itself to to sort of affect these equations. So I decided that we really needed some sort of methodologies, theories, and concepts that would retain the incisive power of social construction, yet also allow for material agencies and the significance of the environment. So I basically then spent many years researching and reading in science studies, corporeal feminist theory, theories in the environmental humanities, and social sciences looking for models that um, that accounted for material agency in this way. So, this resulted in the uh, collection I edited with Susan Heckman, which was Material Feminism. But it also fed directly into to bodily natures.
1: Mm. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so as a way to kind of transition into to our discussion about your book, uh, Bodily Natures, um, in the introduction, in the first chapter, so you talk about this idea of transcorporeality. Um, Mm -hmm. which I think is a huge topic in the book. So I was wondering if maybe you could discuss that a little bit. um, Okay, sure. How that functions in your book.
0: Okay. Uh, So my own, even though I draw upon a lot of other um, theorists and uh, ways of imagining how we can think about material agency, my own contribution is really this concept of transcorporeality. So what I'm trying to do is imagine the human as material, but not as a bounded entity, but as always participating in and substantially part of all of these flows and substances of the material world. And what I'm trying to get at here is that we're really literally the stuff of the world, but that, that also means that we're the stuff of economic systems, of scientific and technological systems, the political systems, that all of those things kind of crisscross and feed directly through our bodies. Um, and my hope is that this sense of your own material self as transcorporeal will make all sorts of environmentalism not um, something you can you can just sort of dismiss or feel distant from it's
1: something you're always already a part of Hmm. yeah i i found it really interesting um that 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 whole concept and i was wondering it reminded me in some ways um about uh or, or reminded me in some ways of thoreau or emerson uh sort of that tradition and i was wondering if maybe you talk about this uh somewhat at length in the book but i was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on sort of like the theoretical foundation for that concept because i found that really interesting and i thought it had e- echoes in other traditions mm-hmm.
0: yeah well the the theoretical foundations are are many there's, been, there's a lot of different um aspects of it here but the the main thing The main thing that I'm getting at with the theory and how it would depart from somebody in an earlier era like, say, Thoreau or Emerson is that I really am emphasizing the scientific dimension along with, say, um, Ulrich Beck's sense of risk society um, in which he says that ordinary people are now expected to figure out what's safe and what's unsafe and that to do that, they have to have access to scientific knowledge but of course scientific knowledge you never know whether it's biased, whether it's complete, whether science has really been done and there's a sense that we can't assess, we can't properly assess the risk to ourselves anymore the way that we, you know, back in an earlier period you knew it would be dangerous to fall off a cliff or be eaten by a mountain lion or something but we don't know whether a particular carton of milk could contribute to cancer or something and how do you figure mm-hmm. that out and uh, so the risk Society part is really important to me but then also this sense of um, the disclosure of the material realities which Susan Heckman writes about um, Pickering's Andrew Pickering's mangle of practice the sense that what we know about the material world is always mangled we, we set up these machines to figure things out and then we do figure something out because the world reacts to whatever experiment is out there. But in the creation of the machine, that's fed fed into by by science, by different um, economic and power structures. And so it's all sort of, we don't have unmediated access to the world, but yet with transcorporeality, Um, I'm arguing that we always have to have these knowledges, and so we're in this really difficult position where almost everything we do now becomes an ethical or political matter, um, as well as a matter of our own individual health. It becomes a larger ethical and political matter, but you don't necessarily um, have any kind of solid epistemological foundation. You're, You're sort of always questioning everything when you... Think about these invisible agencies that surround you and then are part of you. So I think the science studies uh, models were very important to me, and that was that was new for me with uh, bodily natures and material feminism. So that's when I switched into doing more work in science studies, and I think that that's key because science studies is right at that that mix between. Um, Culture and discourses and, and the social sciences and ideologies and all of those things, then it also has to deal with um, accounts of the material world.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, I want to
1: together. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> Could you repeat that? <laughs> sorry.
0: Oh, that it, it also has to uh, account for, or it also has to pull in, it has to mix together the kind of social critique or textual critique. Uh, political critique, but it also has to pull together um, how we account for material realities. What, what's happening, um, say in climate change, or whether something is toxic, or, or other things. Um, I guess that's how I can all I can say. Hmm. There's a part to be edited out there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well. I- I mean, I found obviously I found your book to be really political, and that's something like I, I would like to talk about maybe later on in our conversation. Um, okay. But maybe while we're still kind of talking about the theoretical foundation, or maybe your sort of approach to to the topic a little bit as a way to frame frame the book, um, I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about the fact that. I feel like your book and uh, the the sort of three disciplines that you kind of merge in this book sort of offer a way to maybe move beyond uh, postmodernism, the the sort of linguistic turn, the kind of like corner we've basically gotten ourselves into as scholars, where the human is like so isolated and we we don't have this uh, connection with the natural world um, and. The, the approach you take by looking at the human as being always already in the world like you said earlier i thought that that was really refreshing and you talk about thinking of thinking beyond the post-human like thinking about what that means and i always thought that that was a really interesting term um and i never really i mean i've heard it explained in, in you know in a lot of different ways but i thought that uh, the sort of uh, alternative that you offered was really refreshing. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about that and um, about your attempt to return scholarship to nature or nature to scholarship, um, anything like that.
0: Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, uh, that's a that's a great account of my book. Um, I completely agree with, with your account there, and I do think of the book – as an intervention or transformation into postmodernism and poststructuralism as it's uh, been practiced, and I say that as somebody who, of course, was trained in postmodernism and poststructuralism—that's mm-hmm. my theoretical background, really—and uh, feminist theory, and then cultural studies, which is also those all of those things merge together um, quite well, and. For somebody trained in English studies, I think it's really convenient for us to be operating within the the linguistic terms, because, of course, um, in English studies, we look at literature, we analyze language, all of those things are very convenient for us. But the problem that I found is that that doesn't really make any sense when talking about the environment, when talking about bodies, There's, there's... Entire realms that are cut off if you're only, if you're only operating within the linguistic turn, I think it, it, it became it, it reached a point where it wasn't productive anymore. And um, you know, along with Latour thinking about something like the ozone hole as being something that's linguistic and uh, part of reality and narrated and social. I mean all of those things are all kind of intertwined. And so the, the, the sort of everyday political and, and environmental problems that I found myself in weren't really, weren't really very well served by the sorts of critique that I was trained in, I think, ultimately. So I really did want to find new models that would work. And so as, what, I'm, what I did or what I'm doing is basically within a category now called new materialism. And new materialism is, of course, being defined and redefined as we speak. It hasn't settled into any particular uh, definition as yet. It's still being contested. But for me, the primary aspect of new materialism is that it has to account for material agency, the fact that um, it's not only discursive or ideological or social constructions that form things and have this kind of power and significance, but there's all these strange agencies and surprising um, activities that are happening all around us and in us um, that we have to account for as well. Um, the other the other thing that I would stress in what I'm trying to do, and even though in bodily nature, a lot of times my sources that, that I'm talking about in environmental justice or environmental health movements, a lot of times they're pretty anthropocentric and they're talking only about human health um, in many instances. But I, even if that's the case, I keep trying to say that new um, materialisms, and I don't know that I actually use that term in bodily natures because I think it's a newer term. It's coming out of bodily natures and other people's work. Mm. Um, but, but I would say that that new materialism should be post-humanist. Um, it doesn't make any sense to think about, say, human bodies as material and then draw some kind of um, line around us and make us exceptional or transcendent, yet again, by pulling in ethical or philosophical frameworks that discount the rest of the world or other animals. So I'm, I'm really committed to thinking through how new materialism is or can be or should be post and not, not become all about um, some sort of human perspective once again. That doesn't make sense to me because to me the new materialism break down uh, human exceptionalism. They break down the sense that rationality and, Spirit and the mind is completely separate from the body or the world. None of those dualisms can hold. So why would a human exceptionalism hold? What what would it be built on? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's that's an important thing to me in how all of these different um, these different theories are going to play out and. They're all sort of shaking up against each other right now, and I, I don't really know how it will all unfold, but those are the sorts of things I find important.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I also th- um, found interesting, too, I mean, you know, obviously, like, feminism is a huge part of your book, or feminist perspective is a huge part of your book, and you'll look at works by several feminist uh, writers. Um, and I thought it was interesting, and I had never thought about it this way before, that I mean, in so many ways, with postmodernism, with poststructuralism, I mean, women were sort of constrained by biology. I mean, by thinking about the body, and uh, you know, in in your book, you try to, like you said, you try to think through this and this new materialism by thinking about the body as not being sort of limited to the limits of the the body, but rather just kind of like an like nature is an extension of the body. I thought that that was a really interesting way of thinking past um, feminism in that way or thinking past uh, thinking about, you know, being human, you know, as being equivalent to, you know, the body or biology. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was wondering Mm -hmm. if you could Mm -hmm. elaborate a little bit on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really important point. And it's it's sort of paradoxical and all um, mixed up in a way because (laughs) I think that I – I think that a lot of, of the conception of transcorporeality does come from a very feminist sense of the personal as political, and I cite Our Bodies, Ourselves, and I cite Audre Lorde's early work on in the Cancer Journal, and that kind of um, feminist history before uh, post-structuralism and um, that kind of high theory feminism, which really did look at uh, bodies as these as these political entities not not just politically constructed but um, political perhaps in a more kind of uh, revolting in a in a in a agent, agential sense rather than disgusting sense uh, in that kind of a way and so the the important thing to me here was to both draw on this history of feminism and feminist theory where because women were never allowed to be the transcendent humanist rational subject, they they have a tradition of thinking a kind of both and, that they think through this kind of bodily being, what, what it is to both be a subject and be a body, rather than escape from the body. Um, and there's some, there's some really interesting work being done right now by Eva Hayward, uh, where she writes about her um, transsexuality as being like a starfish and she thinks of starfish regenerating or having limbs cut off. Uh, so I think that that's an example of this kind of um, new materialism that comes specifically from a feminist standpoint in that it's that, that way of thinking through or thinking as a bodily being rather than outside of it. So I do think that that's Important. Um, ironically, uh, Sarah Ahmed has critiqued material feminism or feminist materialism for uh, discounting all of the that came before, and I would I would contest that because I think, at least in bodily natures, I think it's important uh, to give credit for this this whole way of thinking through the politics of the body and um, the epistemologies, the ethics that come out of this kind of dual stance of being a mind and a body simultaneously. I I think a lot of feminist work has done that, and I try to pull some of that in in bodily natures, even though I'm not ultimately arguing for a gendered perspective. I think everybody is transcorporeal, Mm -hmm. Um, even though the recognition of that may have been theorized much more thoroughly in in feminism than in other fields.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I I really found that fascinating, and I think that uh, this concept that you talk about later in the book that I wanted you to explain a little bit, because I found it so fascinating, but also a little mysterious, it's sort of linked with with this idea um, with Uh, feminist writers in particular thinking about themselves not as particularly you know female bodies and the term is counter-memory um and you talk about several things or you know several examples of writing that are examples of this counter-memory as a way to kind of think about if i understood it correctly um as a way to think about yourself or think about your life, your existence, not as how you experienced it or remember it, but how Mm. it may appear or have existed in the world apart from your consciousness. And I I, I thought it was really interesting, and I was wondering maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Right, yeah. And I I think
0: the best example of that would be Suzanne Antonetta's uh, Body Toxic, Um, And I think how I'm departing from other notions of genealogy or counter-memory is that I do want to pull in um, this notion of discursive critique, but I also want to add the profound weirdness of the sense with Suzanne Antonetta's Body Toxic, for example, or other other, uh, texts that I call the Material memoir. That if you think through your body as literally coextensive with the environment, that that gets really strange. So with Antonetta, she can go through her family history, she can go through her personal history, she can explain a lot of things. But then when it comes to uh, her particular medical history. And what has happened to her and her um, bipolar, um, her bipolar um, psychological state? That those things actually could have been produced by particular environmental disasters that, that were happening all around her. And so she's trying to figure out who she is, but she can't. She can't do it as an individual self, and she can't do it even as a part of a culture or a family or as sort of this um, node within competing discourses, like in uh, The Woman Warrior, Maxine Kong-Singston's brilliant book, The Woman Warrior. She has to actually go looking for all of this science about what radiation does or what particular chemicals do and then think through how that produced her. And oftentimes the facts and then... What she's experienced, the facts or the scientific facts about what these things are supposed to do, don't add up. So you, 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 she's at this point where she's trying to make sense of it all, and she can't make sense of it all. There's 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 an openness in this sense of being coextensive with these strange material agencies, but there's also a kind of unraveling of the self and. I think that that's what's so disturbing about it. And I think that she, her book is a really bold memoir because she is trying to take account of things that, um, that don't sort of bolster, a cohesive identity, but instead show this incredible vulnerability to things that are happening in the material world around her. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and I found that interesting that, I mean, you know, obviously you're talking about uh, you know, kind of like grand grand ideas and when you get to that section of your book, a lot of your examples, uh, like you are just talking about when you're talking about counter memory, is they're very personal, they're very individual and you look at several autobiographies. Um mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if you say this somewhere if this is just me, but the autobiography, at least in, in from what I can tell in your book, is uniquely situated to kind of address into the issues that are kind of circulated in your book. So, and you talked about yeah. this a little bit, but I was wondering if maybe you could expand on it um, just a little bit further about what, you know, it's, it does seem counterintuitive, the fact that a way to kind of access and understand these ideas, to understand the, the human connection to nature, that, you know, it's not just confined to the biological body to to understand these these huge concepts and this kind of like universal idea that it begins with the individual i thought that that was really interesting Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah I, i i think you're i would agree with that as well and i think uh one of the things i've done when presenting the book um as a talk in various places that had uh both academic and non-academic audiences was to ask people to think through their own autobiographies mm. and say, I want you to take five minutes and write your autobiography or think, that you, think about if you just met somebody and they asked you for your life story, what would you tell them? And I give them a little time and I then ask them how many of them thought about place, how important was place in their autobiography? How important was environment? How important was science? Did they think that they needed to do scientific research to figure out who they were? (laughs) And that's when it starts getting really weird. Did did you think that in order to write your autobiography, you would have to do scientific research and that would help you understand yourself? Well, of course, nobody would think of that, right? So we, we, we think of our autobiographies as individual, of course, in this American sense of individualism and the creation of the self, that we sort of wheel ourselves into existence, or we think of them in terms of family or maybe culture or something. Um, But I think the material memoirs are really distinctive in uh, breaking through the bounded notion of the self to really make who we are coextensive with where we are. And I think that um, for me, One of those moments came with the the hair sampling that I talk about in the book where I received from Greenpeace this uh, invitation to cut off a piece of my hair and put it on this little scale and then send it in to them as part of their anti-mercury campaign. And I thought how weird that was to have a piece of my body, literally a piece of my body going through the mail system to Greenpeace be scientifically tested. And then when I got the information back, it was this whole mix of um, what I could do to prevent more mercury in the environment, but it also had information about um, whether or not my number was exceedingly high and what that meant. And to try to process all of these things as you're... I mean, it really does change the notion of what a human being is if you are literally so uh, intimately and undeniably connected to the material world. And I think I think the toxins make the case, either radioactivity or toxins, those sorts of things make the case more strongly um, than anything else I can think of, really.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I... That's actually a good segue into a little, to the more explicit political nature of your book, um, is the, the idea that you know thinking about our connection to the environment, that we are sort of we're violated by these toxins and these substances in the environment, and you talk about this idea of body burden. About how, right. um, you know, depending on who you are, where you live, your socioeconomic status, your body burden, you know, is going to be higher. Um, and I, mm-hmm. and that sort of brings in race, class. And I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on that a little bit more. This issue, this idea of body burden.
0: Right. I I think I think body burden really is um, at the core of thinking through what transcorporeality means in the 21st century because it gets to the crux of the matter that we we absolutely can't uh, think of our bodies as these inviolate realms that we have control over, that we are always already invaded by all sorts of substances that have all sorts of effects. And I think politically, one of the most important issues here is the fact that what we can know is determined by economic and political forces that we often have very little control over. So um, Robert Proctor's book about uh, what we do and don't know about cancer um, and how politics affects that. that I'm not getting the title exactly right, but, but basically there are many tests that will not be done. There are many things we will not know about the substances already in our body because um, there are entities that don't want us to know those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that that's that's, uh, really important politically. But in terms of environmental justice, I think body burden gets very complicated because uh, on the one hand, there are certainly... There's certainly a huge amount of research done connecting, say, African Americans, um, Native Americans, Mexican Americans, and then particular uh, class demographics to uh, be living, you know, having a higher um, chance of living next to a toxic waste dump or an incinerator or something else. But then there's also ways in which these things get scrambled, like in the multiple chemicals sensitivity chapter um, where sometimes people who are more affluent actually are using many more chemicals in their lives or have more new furniture or new carpet or other things and they are actually at a higher risk of um, a sort of consumerist, not, not sort of different from the environmental justice model, but for, from consumerist exposures. So... The politics of the body burden gets really complicated and and as more biomonitoring comes into play, as it gets a little cheaper and maybe as more groups are interested in conducting body burden tests, um, we might see different groups that we have not even imagined develop as um, particularly vulnerable groups. I I write about a couple of organizations who talk about, um, say, children as a category that are uh, more vulnerable and, of course, that cuts across all racial and class lines. Um, Pregnant women, same thing, but then uh, they talk about rural communities and it's unclear whether there's a racial dimension with rural communities or not. In some ways, these things aren't going to conform to our preconceived notions of groups that have been um, oppressed or targeted in various ways because I think that's that's one of the issues here is that these material agencies and networks and systems uh, cut across and form and do things that we may not know in advance or be able to predict. I think that the if you if you go to the um, Environmental Justice Working Group and, and see their Human Toxome Project, I really do think that that was a completely brilliant uh, campaign. Just visually, and I wish I, I could have included the visuals in the book itself, but visually, you see someone's body burden test portrayed on your computer screen in such a way that their their head, their portrait, is very small up in the corner. And then instead of their body, you see all of the chemicals that are in their body. And it's, it's like their body is this vast chemical landscape and their biography is just on the side, sort of marginal. Their head, the, the kind of um, marker of individuality and personality that we would expect from a biography, is very small and dwarfed by all of these contaminants. And I think that... The, the visual rhetoric of the Human Toxone project, which is also called mapping the pollution in People, which I think is also brilliant, the idea of mapping people for pollution um, I, I think it's it's really a brilliant strategy, and I hope that um, I hope that they continue to work on that uh, site in that project
1: mm, that is really. I hadn't had a chance to visit that website. I was familiar with the Environmental working group, but not not that particular project. Um I did yeah I have oh,
0: yeah uh, website I have some um I include links to some of these things on my website under that talks about my books, so um I wasn't able to include all of the visuals in the books that I had wanted to, but they are they are linked on my
1: website oh okay, great, um I did go to the the website the rec dot org where you can? Oh right. Um,
0: mm-hmm. I
1: like I, as I was reading the book, I went to that website because I was curious about you know where I live, and <laughs> I thought that was right. interesting. What did you
0: find? What did you find out? Did you find uh, out well, anything I, terrible? I, or are you?
1: Huh?
0: Well, are you living I, I, in a pretty
1: safe place? Yeah, well, I live in Chapel Hill, so it's pretty, um, pretty green and pretty progressive and liberal. We have some pretty good environmental policies, but I found out that you know, like lead is you know horrible pollutant in this area and. <laughs> Um, right, right. I mean, my my wife works in uh, in water quality. She's uh, in public health. Mm. Um, and so she's really interested in all these topics. And so I, I know a lot of it from her, but I, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I thought that, getting back to your book in that chapter, I thought it was interesting when you talk about the fact that some of the the largest or the some of the corporations that are – are the most pro, you know, breast cancer or cancer awareness are the ones who put the, those chemicals into the environment. Um, and I thought that that was really interesting that the, the corporations that, you know, have pink ribbons on their products or, you know, have products that are pink during breast cancer awareness month or other, uh, cancer related awareness programs that they're sometimes the largest offenders. And I thought that that was fascinating as well.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think it's so important to trace these material networks. So that's why this idea of transcorporeality is all about material networks, material substances, and tracing those things, and not to get completely caught up in the discourse and, and rhetoric. Because it's it's really important to critique um, the Susan B. Coleman Foundation for. Snapping its uh, pink ribbons on all of these products that are actually carcinogenic, uh, and so the, the Breast Cancer Action Group that publicizes this information, I think, is really important. And they have some very clever campaigns. But I think, I think, just sort of generally, I think we're we're creatures of culture. We're creatures of of um, stories and entertainment, and it's really it's really easy to get sucked into something like the Komen Foundation, where it's all it's all happy and it's all about affirmation and bonding, and it's so positive and fuzzy and warm.
2: Mm.
0: It, it's hard to depart from that. I had one of the students in my class actually uh, last week said we we're talking about bodily natures actually in my uh, new materialism seminar, and he said. I want to critique your critique of the Susan Coleman Foundation because I I know people who really have been made so happy by them, and, and it really affected them positively, and it helped them to be part of these um, the runs that they do, and it was inspiring to them. And I said, uh, well... That may be true. That's, I'm, sure, I'm sure that's true on a personal level. This was a positive thing for them, but that's exactly what I want to question here, is that uh, just because something is psychologically helpful does not mean in the grand scheme of things that this is a good thing and that if we only are looking at these kind of psychological or, or affective responses or how... how um, comforting the messages or something and we're not actually looking at the material effects of say someone buying products with a pink ribbon on it and those products ultimately contributing to them getting cancer, it's not going to get us anywhere. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: uh, I I think we need to do more of that serious work of figuring out what we are actually doing in the world to ourselves and to the rest of the world.
1: Mm, yeah, and, and I mean, going along those lines is maybe maybe this is sort of a way to kind of conclude our discussion of bodily natures. Um, but you sort of talk about towards the end the idea of environmental environmentalism, um, and you sort of redefined it for me because I think like. Like, like a lot of people, you know, I, I am an environmentalist and but when I think about the environment it is always something that's away from me. That it's something that I can right. go to, I can access when I want to, but I'm separate from it. And mm-hmm. and I when I hear environmentalism I think of green outside, you know, nature. But you yeah. in talking about this idea of transcorporeality, you kind of redefine environmentalism as being I mean, I'm in my office right now you know, I, I'm, I'm in an environment, I am in the environment and right, because exactly. I'm a part of the environment that won't like thinking about environmentalism doesn't, it doesn't fit in that traditional model. Um, and you know, I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about that, like the sort of political mm-hmm. implications of redefining environmentalism. Yeah,
0: definitely. I think that's, that's, uh, very important to what I'm trying to do. And I'd like to think of it as two different ways. So on the one hand, I want everyone to feel that they always already should be an environmentalist (laughs) because everything is always already transcorporeal. So like you say, in your office, it's an environment. So um, is there asbestos there? Is there some sort of um, fumes or toxic substances or something that, that... Could ultimately harm you in some way and where are they coming from and how is that all bound up with with systems of class and race and and who knows what else. Um, So all of the environmental issues but especially with toxins, this is the easiest one to imagine, affect human health as well as um, some sort of outside world which I don't think is ever outside. So there's that aspect but then the other aspect ethically uh, and politically, is that is thinking through how every single thing that we do has some kind of an effect. And in some ways, this can be paralyzing because it's really hard, for example, to not use any plastic. And uh, I've been researching the ocean lately, and ocean ecologies, and a huge problem is plastics and microplastics that make it their way into the ocean. And so part of transcorporeality on, on the flip side is to think through how one's own bodily needs and bodily existence um, always uses and affects the environment, and then it's a matter of thinking through what are the best practices. And I think I think the real challenge of transcorporeality is this realization that pretty much everything that we do has some kind of an effect, mm-hmm. and so then the question is. How do you change those practices? What sorts of knowledges do you rely on? Um, do the knowledges even exist that you need to make decisions? Sometimes they don't exist. Uh, so that's, that's one of the challenge that I, challenges I would pose, and I think it does change environmentalism. And, of course, sustainability and climate change movements would be part of this as well, because with, uh, say, climate change movements, that idea of the carbon footprint, pretty much every single thing that you do or own has some kind of a carbon footprint. Um, And again, this this is staggering because the most minute elements of your life are connected or are themselves actually these important ethical and political moments or practices or opportunities or challenges. And in some ways, that, that's so daunting. In in other ways, it, there's so much possibility there. Um, Rosie Braidotti says something about uh, we should practice sustainable becoming for the hell of it and for the love of the world. <laughs> and I just I think that that's that's a great quote because you can't guarantee that anything that you do is going to ultimately have some sort of major effect. But on the other hand why not uh why not practice this kind of sustainable becoming or this ethics of transcorporeality because
1: why not uh for the hell of it and the love of the world hmm. that's great <laughs> um, <laughs> uh so maybe uh if you'd like to talk a little bit about your current work, I know that bodily natures was published in two thousand and ten. Uh, I know that you published an article recently in PMLA, I think the last <laughs> issue. That's actually how I found you. <laughs> I yeah, was okay. flipping uh-huh. through PMLA, and I, I really liked your article. Um, oh, okay. So I was wondering if maybe you could just to give our listeners an idea of maybe what you're working on now. You mentioned you were teaching a seminar on new materialisms, any new books in the um, mm-hmm. in the plans? Yeah, uh, well...
0: When I finished Bodily Natures, I wanted to put my mind into something that was completely different from New Materialism, <laughs> because uh, I always want that kind of challenge when starting another book. What happened, however, is I got all sorts of requests to write articles about New materialisms <laughs> and Transcorporeality, and so I've written, um, I don't know, five or six new pieces that are all related to Transcorporeality and New Materialism some of which try to connect the idea to the ocean and try to understand what it would be like to think through ocean ecologies and ocean environmentalism from a transcorporeal perspective. Um, So that's a sort of transitional project in a way because I've done several essays um, like that. But the... The next book that I want to do is called Sea Creatures and the Limits of Animal Studies, Science, Aesthetics, and Ethics. And what's completely new about this book is that I really want to try to figure out um, how we could conceive of aesthetics as political um, within the context of deep sea animals. Because uh, animal studies has mainly focused on creatures that either our companion species or our close kin or that we have some kind of interactions with. And the creatures at the bottom of the ocean are very, very far removed from from human lives. It's very hard to figure out what a kind of ethics would be coming out of um, the consideration of their lives because it's, it's just so alien. So I'm I'm thinking about aesthetic representations of these creatures and how the science and beauty work together and how, how this works out and whether it has any sort of ethical or political impact. So that's the kind of problem I'm posing for myself. So I'm trying to uh, write something completely different and draw upon uh, Ron theories of the uh, distribution of the sensible and then mature sense of compositionism. And I'm trying to bring those two theorists together as I um, analyze uh, the portrayal of deep sea creatures from about the early 20th century to the present.
1: Wow, that sounds really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Um okay well dr limo i want to thank you so much for joining us thank you for uh, for being willing to talk about your book i really enjoyed our conversation excellent
0: thank you very much thanks for the invitation i really enjoyed the discussion
1: well i hope you enjoyed my conversation with dr stacy limo and i hope you join me next time for my last podcast my guest will be dr suzanne stewart steinberg and we'll be talking about her book impious fidelity anna freud psychoanalysis and politics